Well, the masks came off in 2020. The Democratic Party showed its true face this year. No more pretending. The party of science and healthcare exposed itself for what it's always been, the party of death. We take a look at the Democrats' major exposures of the last year and dive into what their plan is for the GOP, the preborn's last political ally. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thank you for tuning in. I hope your Christmas was merry, was wonderful, and I hope it was filled with friends and family and fellowship and no masks on your face, unless, of course, you needed to to protect the vulnerable amongst us. But I hope you were able to breathe in the fresh air of this country and breathe in that freedom for as long as we can and devote ourselves to protecting that freedom, which obviously begins with the right to practice those freedoms, the right to live, the right to not to be killed. And so those are the kind of ideas we articulate and talk about on this show. And this is going to be our last episode for 2020. So we're going to do a little bit of a recap and then dive in to what the Democrats plan is for the pro-life party in 2021. That's not me saying that the GOP is perfect or that it's always been the perfect friend and ally to the pro-life movement, but that it's the only pro-life party. We know that at the end of the day, we're picking between two political parties and only one of them is going to advance the causes of the pro-life movement. So we're going to dive into all of that and wrap up this year. But if you haven't given the show a rating and review yet, please go ahead and do that. It really helps us. Give us five stars. Let us know what you think. Subscribe on YouTube where we're... um, I'll have all of our content available as well if you'd like to watch it. And obviously, with the large search engine that YouTube is, we'd love to reach more people with these ideas online. So help us do that. Thank you so much. Now, you might be familiar with the very famous Maya Angelou quote. It goes something like this. She said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) If someone puts their true colors on, if someone lets their mask slip and you see the entirety of their face, you see them for who they are. Uh, believe them. Don't assume it's a farce. Don't assume it's merely a play, but that they're showing you who they are. And this year, there was a lot of showing and exposing this year, wasn't there? <laughs> wasn't there? With the shutdowns that accompanied the COVID-19, sort of presented a political opportunity to accomplish the political goals that the left always wanted anyways. This crisis just enabled them to accomplish those goals. So we're going to review some of the major events and exposures of 2020 that prove exactly who the Democratic Party is on the issue of abortion. And then we'll turn to their plan for the GOP in 2021, the preborn's last political ally. So I want to sort of hone in on a few different flashpoints, hone in on a few different things that we covered throughout the year on this show. Many of you, though, have probably not been listening to the show for the entire year. Or if you have, maybe this is the only pro-life podcast you listen to and you forgot some of the things that we covered months and months ago. So let's rewind all the way back to nearly the beginning of the year in February of 2020 at President Trump's State of the Union address, okay? If you watch the entire thing or if you listen to this show, you might remember that during his State of the Union address, President Trump honed in and sort of focused in on a family like presidents tend to do in the last few uh, couple decades. They kind of elevate someone in the audience, they tell their story, and then they use that person's story to call on Congress for funding to help more people like that, right? And so President Trump toned in on Robin Schneider and her daughter, Ellie, okay? Now, baby Ellie, Robin Schneider's daughter, was born at 21 weeks and six days. 21 weeks and six days. Now, I believe in 
towards the end uh, or during the summer or early fall of 2020, a baby went home who was born at 21 weeks and zero days. Incredible. Six days earlier, you're basically now just um, at the end of the second trimester, basically a full trimester younger than the age of the baby supposed to be when they're born. So 21 weeks and six days at the time, making baby Ellie the youngest surviving prematurely born baby in the world. And live action news covered Ellie's story previously to President Trump's State of the Union address. And they said that uh, she was born at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. And that's the first hospital in the area to initiate a program designed to treat very premature babies born before 24 weeks of pregnancy. According to KSBH Kansas City, nationally, babies born prior to the 24-week mark have a 6% survival rate. Okay, that's, I mean, that's tragic. It's really low. But at St. Luke's, they have a 50% survival rate. So they say it's clear that medical intervention has made a huge difference. Wow. <laughs> so clearly just pouring time, talent, and treasure into a hospital to build out your preemie wing, if you will, to care for prematurely born babies, upped the survival percentage rate by 44 points, right? That's incredible. So when we want to, we can save these prematurely born babies, or as President Trump called them, America's youngest patients. Okay, now why do I talk about this? Because Trump recognized and celebrates Robin and her his two her two-year-old daughter Ellie, and then calls on Congress to provide $50 million towards neonatal research so that babies born at Ellie's age and younger can be saved. Parents who want their children, who are born very prematurely, can still be able to save those children through this funding, through this research. Okay, awesome, great. Well, what happened when President Trump did that? When he called on Congress, the camera goes in on baby Allie and Robin. You see this two-year-old precious girl alive because of the medical heroism and funding at St. Luke's in Kansas City, Missouri. Well, the whole congressional floor stands up and applauds. Not just the Republicans, the whole congressional floor, okay? Now, you can go back and watch this footage. We played some of it earlier this year. The entire Congress stands up and claps for President's the president's call to care for preemie babies. Now, this is ironic since they support abortion through all nine months of pregnancy and refuse to pass an Abortion Survivors Protection Act. But shh, you're not supposed to say that. We'll get to that in a little bit. So then Trump makes the logical connection, completely logical connection, between protecting 22-week-old babies, which basically was the age of Ellie, and protecting 36-week-old babies, <laughs> significantly older, by calling on Congress to finally ban what he called the late-term abortion of babies, of course, right? Now, almost every single congressional Democrat refuses to stand or clap. And this is like 60, 90, 100 seconds after baby Ellie's story. <laughs> after the whole Congress just went, yes, 22-week prematurely born babies who are wanted by their mothers. Yay, let's save more of those babies. But 36, 37, 38, 39, 40-week unborn children? <laughs> 10, 11 weeks older than baby Ellie? Save them? Meaning stop killing them? Of course not. Every Republican, congressional Republican, stands up and applauds for banning the late-term abortion of babies. And uh, four or five on the Democratic side of Congress stood up and clapped, right? Unbelievable. Trump is asking them to ban the slaughter of babies fully three months older than baby Ellie. By the way, here are two pictures of 22-week-old babies. 22-week-old babies. Here's a picture of baby Ellie, right, on the left, whose life Democrats celebrate, next to a picture of what congressional Democrats believe that Mother Robin should have had the right to do to Ellie if she didn't want her. Ah, yes, the bigotry of wanted and unwanted.
Doesn't matter that they're both humans. Doesn't matter they're the same flipping age. Doesn't matter. One's wanted, one's unwanted. So therefore, one is infinitely valuable, one is trash and will be treated like such. And that will be funded by the public dole. Hmm. So the mask is slipping. Democrats are struggling, continually so, to hold together the puzzle pieces of their ideology. Because it's an incoherent ideology. You, you can't hold these pieces together. You can't say, I love prematurely born babies when they're wanted and accidentally born too early. And I want to save them. But ones that are three months older and could have survived outside the womb for months already, for weeks already, are trash and should have their limbs ripped off their body. But the only difference is the psychological state of their parents. One parent's psychological state says, I want to be a mother and I really love this baby. The psychological state of the other mother says, oops, I waited too long to schedule my late-term abortion. Now I need an eight-month abortion. Can you pay for it? Can you pay for it, government? Can you force Americans and raise their taxes to cover my late-term abortion? As if the psychological state of parents' brains change the inherent dignity and value of their children. That's the insanity of choice and the insanity of the party of death, the Democratic Party. So they're here juggling the puzzle pieces of their ideology, but they're falling all over the place. And we're seeing them for the frauds that they are. So that's the first piece of news, sort of flashpoint I wanted to take you back to in 2020 that shows you, exposes exactly who the Democratic Party is, the party of death. Okay, secondly, let's let's sort of hone in on some of the legislation that failed to pass thanks to the party of death, thanks to the commitment of the party of death to Molech and to abortion, which is the greatest sacrament of the left. Leftism is a religion. It has very strange religious views such as Gnosticism and Gnostic body dualism, which says that the real you is not your body. It's just your soul, your feelings, how you feel inside. So if you're a boy, but you think you're a girl because you feel like you're a girl, then you're actually a girl and your body's nothing. Your body is not you. So sleep with as many people as you want and kill as many babies or are, are, are reproduced through your sexual escapades because the body doesn't mean anything. It's not you. These very strange religious views of the person and the soul exist in leftism because it's a religion. Well, it also has a sacrament. And the greatest sacrament of the religion of leftism is abortion because it extends the greatest precepts of leftism, sexual autonomy, to the elimination of the reproductions of sexual autonomy, little human beings who dwell in wombs. The sacrament of abortion must be protected. The precious must be protected. Because abortion allows them to live their lives however they want, unencumbered by the responsibilities that come along with sex and with parenting. And so two of these legislations that they have opposed at every turn because it might compromise the, the fictional constitutional right to an abortion was the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act and the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Okay, so let's sort of do a quick review on these. So on February 25th of 2020, Senate Democrats filibustered the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. And yes, it is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) Protecting, an act protecting unborn children who are capable of feeling pain, okay, which would have banned abortion after 20 weeks. Both bills, the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act and the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, died as neither received the 60 votes necessary to overcome the filibuster initiated by the party of death in the first place, the Democratic Party. So 53-44 in favor of the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, 
but not the 60 necessary to overcome the filibuster, okay? Now, only two Democrats voted yes on banning the slaughter of babies who can feel the pain of dismemberment. By the way, the full range of human pain. I mean, to the extent that you and I feel pain, born people feel pain, okay? Only two Democrats voted yes, Bob Casey of Pennsylvania and Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Joe Manchin has sort of signaled that he might even switch parties and become a Republican. That's how uncomfortable he's become with his party. And one Republican voted against Susan Collins of Maine. Okay, now this would just ban the killing of babies at 20 weeks. That doesn't mean that unborn children begin feeling pain at 20 weeks. It just means that they can feel the full range of human pain at 20 weeks. Unborn children can feel pain and respond to stimuli far before, far, you know, far earlier than 20 weeks. I'll point you to Dr. Maureen Kondik, a PhD and associate professor of neurobiology and anatomy at the University of Utah. Now, Dr. Maureen Kondik testified before Congress in 2017 regarding her research and the findings of fetal pain. Here's what she said. It is entirely uncontested in the scientific and medical literature that a fetus experiences pain in some capacity from as early as eight weeks. Okay, most abortions are going to be performed at their earliest at five weeks, earliest, okay? Six, seven, eight, nine weeks would be kind of your bulk majority of abortions. Over 90% of abortions are performed in the first trimester, and within the first trimester, the majority of those are going to happen between six and 10 weeks, six and nine weeks, okay? So she's saying at eight weeks, the baby can already feel pain. And most modern neuroscientists conclude that the thalamic circuitry that's in place by 18 weeks post-fertilization is primarily responsible for human experience of pain at all stages of life. So she's saying the unborn child is actually fully capable of feeling pain to the extent that we are two weeks earlier than the stage of development that the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act places it at, okay? So that's just a little bit about the ability of the child to feel pain. But they filibustered it because they're the party of death and they want to kill babies who can feel pain. Secondly, they filibustered and shot down or killed, no pun intended, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And we covered this a lot on Unaborted at the time. It's an anti-infanticide bill. It would have done nothing to regulate okay, or restrict a woman's fictional right to an abortion, meaning it has nothing to do with the child in the womb. It only has everything to do with what to do or what you cannot do to the child out of the womb if the baby survives a botched abortion and escapes through the birth canal. 56-41 in favor, but didn't overcome the 60 votes necessary to overcome the filibuster. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren refused to vote on either bill. Okay, not to speak is to speak. You're in favor of these bills. And the only Democrats to vote in favor were Joe Manchin, Bob Casey, and Doug Jones, all from very red districts as Democrats. And so if they didn't if they didn't cast their vote for an anti-infanticide bill, very unlikely that they'd win re-election. Okay. So the Democrats' defense in voting against this bill was something like this. The reason that they said we can't vote to protect infants who survive botched abortions because we already have laws against infanticide. And so therefore, this is a Trojan horse bill with a far-right anti-abortion goal. Okay, now this is hilarious that they say, like, we're not going to vote to make sure that abortionists don't uh, kill infants who survive botched abortions because we already have laws against infanticide. Because in 2019, under Kamala Harris's guidance, I believe, co-sponsored a bill labeling lynchings a federal hate crime, okay, labeling lynchings a federal hate crime. But we already have laws against murder regardless of how you murder someone. Lynching would 
be murdering someone, so you don't have to label it a federal hate crime because we already have laws against it. But that was still very important for them to do. So even this line of like, we don't want to pass laws against things that we already have laws against um, is merely just sort of semantic jargon. But it's also not necessarily true. So Alexander DeSanctis from National Review did a lot of in-depth coverage on the attempts of the GOP to pass the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, co-sponsored by Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska. Here's what she said. There is no existing federal law that requires doctors to provide medical care for infants who survive an abortion procedure. The Born Alive Infant Protection Act of 2002 under Bush established that the terms person, human being, child, and individual in federal law include every infant born alive, even after an abortion. Ah, but it instituted no penalties for physicians who neglected to care for such infants. So I wasn't actively killing the baby that survived an abortion. I just kind of stepped away and I let the infant sit on the table and starve to death. Oh, whoa. Okay. Well, if you don't feed your one-year-old, uh, you will be held uh, in a court of law for child abuse and for murder of your child. Okay. It's the same thing. And as of 2014, only 26 states mandated care for infants born alive after an attempted abortion. And those state laws can, of course, be changed, as was done in the state of New York. Okay, so all this bill said was if a baby survives a botched abortion, the baby has to receive the same level of medical attention and care as any other baby would receive under normal circumstances and born at the same gestational age. Secondly, the baby has to immediately be transferred to a hospital. Why? Because abortion clinics aren't created to preserve the life of infants. Their whole industry is kind of built on uh, murdering infants. (laughs) And thirdly, if the abortionist or staff don't report the fact that a baby was born alive during a botched abortion, there will be legal consequences. And if you actively murder the child or step back and allow it to die, you'll actually be charged with murder. Okay, so pretty straightforward. Notice it doesn't regulate or restrict abortion whatsoever. We're now talking about a baby already outside of the womb, not in the mother's body. Huh. So why would Senate Senate Democrats ignore the lack of laws requiring states to provide medical care to babies born alive during failed abortions? And what would they have to lose? If it doesn't restrict abortion whatsoever, then what do you have to lose in just saying, sure, yeah, even though even if I don't think this is happening, even though it does happen, uh, sure, whatever, I'll cast the vote to make sure that infants can't be neglected to be cared for after surviving a botched abortion. What do I have to lose as a Democrat? It doesn't restrict abortion. Why wouldn't they take that route and just vote for it? Well, we turn to Robert P. George from Princeton University, one of our favorite professors, to answer that question. Robert P. George rightly explains the conservative attempt to work legislatively within our political system in an incremental way to accomplish goals. So here's what he says. He says, planting premises in the law whose logic demands in the end full respect for all members of the human family can be a valuable thing to do, even where those premises seem modest. Yeah, I think it's a pretty modest premise to say, can we agree in a bipartisan fashion that babies who survive botched abortions and are born should not be killed or should not be allowed to just lay on the table and die? Isn't that a pretty modest premise? These are not fetuses. They are not embryos. These are not unborn babies. These are infants born alive. But you see, Senate Democrats are smart enough to realize that if they condemn infanticide right after the baby is born, then it becomes morally untenable to suggest that the mother should still have the right to get an abortion seconds, minutes, or a day before that baby is born, right? Think about the 
lunacy of partial birth abortions, which we've talked about on this show right now, federally illegal, but in, not thanks to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who worked very hard to ensure that partial birth abortions could remain legal. You remember you pull a baby out by their legs through forced delivery up to the shoulders. And while the shoulder and head are still in the vaginal canal, you just stick scissors in the back of the head and the neck and you open those scissors to create a hole in the back of their neck and you suck their brains out with a vacuum. It's the closest thing to a French guillotine for babies. Now their legs are flailing outside of their mother's body because they're halfway born with their head inside the birth canal and you chop their head off. Now, Senate Democrats also came out against that. Why? Because if you suggest that killing a baby half born is wrong, <laughs> then how could you suggest to the American public that, but, but you see, but right before that ankle, that ankle left the amniotic sac and, 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 and it went through the vaginal canal, right before that, it was a blob of tissue and it was part of the mother's body and killing it was reproductive justice. But you see, when a couple limbs moved four inches, then I voted against it because that's obviously a person. Only a full-scale idiot or someone so addicted to ideology that they are no longer capable of rational thought could maintain or abide by such a position. Do you see? If you plant moral premises in the law that suggest that babies just born shouldn't be killed, that premise will start to grow. And as it grows, it's going to bear fruit. Some of that fruit will be this. Well, then surely it couldn't be okay to kill the baby right before it was born. And if it's, okay, if it's wrong to kill nine-month babies in the womb right before they're born, how could it be okay to kill them at eight months? You see? So this is how the pro-life movement has worked incrementally to plant moral premises in the law that in the end demand full respect for all members of the human family. But Senate Democrats understand that attempt from conservatives. So they're going to do anything they can to prevent us from planting those moral premises in the law, even a modest premise that says, can we get on board with making sure that infants already born after botched abortions are not murdered? And they'll say, no, we can't get on board with that. I can't do that. Because then you might use that philosophical premise to reel back abortion rights because obviously an infant is valuable. And I don't want to acknowledge that obviously that infant in the womb right before it's born is valuable because then you might continue to reel back abortion all the way to conception. And I can't have that as a Democrat because we're the party of death. You see, they understand all this. So the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act might plant logical premises in the law that would eventually demand that we respect the unborn child. In turn, abortions would be decreased and limited, and nothing creates more fear to the party of death than that. Protect the precious, protect the sacrament, protect abortion. So their opposition to ending abortion for babies who can feel the pain of dismemberment, and their opposition to protecting babies who are flailing around on the hospital table after surviving a botched abortion tells you everything that you need to know. It's not about women's health. It's not about reproductive health care. It's about profit. And anything that might anything that might harm access to abortion or restrict it in later stages of this American experiment will become un unacceptable to that party. Okay, so we're going to get to more of their mask slipping and more of what we can learn from the activities of the abortion industry and their political surveils in 2020 next. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. Okay, 2021 is going to be an insane year. We're going to get to a little bit, a little bit of that next about what you can expect 
in these abortion wars and what will be facing unborn children and those who seek to protect them in this next year, assuming that a miracle doesn't happen and somehow President Trump is reelected. We're going to get into all of that, but we need your support to help make that case for life in the public square, bring these ideas before the American public, bring these ideas before the young people I speak to, and start creating more content and different types of content, like interactive content on the streets and on college campuses, which your support can help us do. Check out our tiers, check out our perks, and pick one, sign up, patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to the show. So let's keep rolling in our recap of 2020 here, because 2020 was really one for the record books <laughs> in terms of the war, the battle, the eternal struggle between the party of life and the party of death, right? Between those who stand for the lives of the unborn created in the image of the prenatal God and those whose platform includes the destruction of those children. This will be one for the record books, 2020 was exceptional in meaning it was the exception. It wasn't good in any way, but it's certainly a year that we can learn a lot of lessons from. And I want to point you to some of those lessons and flashpoints from 2020 as we gear up and prepare for 2021, which might be the most dangerous political year to our preborn neighbors. And so whether it's the clapping of the Democratic Party to neonatal funding to save prematurely born babies, but the refusal to clap to end the abortion of late trimester babies that are 10 weeks older than the babies that they just clapped to save, or whether it's them shooting down the pain-capable unborn child protection act or the born alive abortion survivors protection act, the mask is slipping. The ideology is more apparent to the American public and the mainstream media is having to work harder than ever before to lift the mask back up over the faces of the party of death so people don't see what's rotting beneath them. Well, what else can we learn? Well, you might recall the Louisiana law earlier this year during the summer that was going to require abortionists to be beholden to universal surgical health standards, right? Hey, can we just uh, make sure that the abortion industry has to meet the same health requirements, safety requirements as every other ambulatory surgical center? Nope. No, we can't do that. Because if we require that, that type of like, you know, medical safety consistency, um, some of the abortion clinics might not be able to meet those requirements. Therefore, they'll have to shut down and there will be less people available to kill those children and less of a profit to be turned on the dismemberment of those children. And we can't have that. Okay, I did a very quick recap of what we're about to dive into. But in the June 2020 Supreme Court decision, June Medical versus Rousseau was examining this question. Should abortionists and abortion clinics be held to the same medical standards as every other surgeon and ambulatory surgical center? Okay, Live Action News reporting in October of the previous year reported that the law called the Unsafe Abortion Act in Louisiana was signed in 2014 and states that every physician who performs or induces an abortion must have active admitting privileges at a hospital no further than 30 miles from the location of the facility at which the abortion was committed. Admitting privileges are vital because they allow emergency medical staff at the hospitals to have all of the information necessary to help the patient. Sounds like that should be bipartisan, right? When a woman suffers an abortion-related injury and must be taken by ambulance to a hospital, as is unfortunately a too common occurrence, doctors at the hospital must be able to give her immediate quality care. So they're saying abortionists should have admitting privileges at local hospitals. So if something happens to the woman in a botched abortion and she is injured, the hospital will be able to receive all of her medical records promptly 
right? And professionally and quickly and expediently so that they can quickly prepare to care for her. That's it. <laughs> now, if abortion is health care, why wouldn't pro-choice advocates back a bill that will better provide for the health care of women obtaining abortions? Because shh, abortion's not about health care. That's the quiet part, right? That abortion advocates won't say out loud. Also, of course, abortion naturally has dangers involved because it's unnatural. There's nothing natural about forcibly dilating your cervix before it's supposed to be opened so that you can insert a vacuum or actual forceps to tear off the limbs of your child. There's a reason why the cervix remains shut until you begin to have contractions and your body prepares naturally to bear the child. Oh, it's almost as if God made it that way. Of course, there's dangers involved with an abortion because it's unnatural. It goes against the natural order. And OBGYNs have come out supporting requiring abortionists to have admitting privileges, okay? So this isn't just like some sort of like pro-life ninja subterfuge legislative attempt to end abortions, although it kind of is. <laughs> it's also just completely uncontroversial and bipartisan, or at least it should be. Damon Cootie, an OBGYN in what state? Oh, yeah, Louisiana, where the lawsuit took place, wrote a piece entitled – I'm an OBGYN. Here's why I support requiring hospital admitting privileges for abortion providers. And he wrote this in the Daily Signal just a few weeks, I believe, or a week or so after the Supreme Court shot down this law. Here's what he had to say. Over the years, I've worked at several different hospital emergency rooms in various U.S. states. I've taken care of patients who, present, who presented with complications from induced surgical abortions. In my assessment of patients, precious time was lost while attempting to contact the abortion provider or at least to obtain medical records that would have helped me better care for this patient who, who was presented to the emergency room. Such patients who come in off the street, which is to say they were not being transferred from another facility or from another doctor, they were first evaluated by the triage nurses, then an ER doctor, and then I would be called since the doctor who performed the abortion did not have admitting privileges. With these patients, I was often disappointed to learn that there was no way to contact the doctor or to obtain pertinent medical records that would have provided critical information about what procedures had occurred or what medications were given. Knowledge of preceding medical or surgical interventions is essential for establishing a diagnosis as to the nature of the complication and how to treat it. I have no doubt that more lives could be saved and many lifelong health complications avoided if such patients could have continuity of care from the doctor who originally performed the surgery. Needless to say, this kind of routine patient abandonment is not tolerated in any other medical specialty. That's exactly right. Because the abortion industry doesn't care about health. They don't care about health care. They don't care about reproductive health care. These are just buzzwords that they use in order to create a more palatable ideological pill for the American public to swallow and therefore support the abortion industry writ large. And OBGYNs are saying, of course, it's important, necessary, <clears throat> and entirely uncontroversial that abortionists have admitting privileges at a local hospital, just like every other ambulatory surgical center in the state of Louisiana. But the Supreme Court shot that down thanks to the fake conservative and coward John Roberts, who has continued to be a terror to unborn children and liberty writ large. Now, remember, the position of the pro-choice movement is that abortion is health care, and abortionists are doctors, and they are health care providers. But they also admit that abortion is a surgical procedure. So according to abortion advocates, abortionists are the only healthcare providers and doctors whose surgery should not be beholden to industry standard guidelines and requirements. They just get a trump card. They get a get out of jail free card. They get a hall pass. It doesn't matter because we don't want them encumbered 
by any laws or regulations that might in turn harm access to abortion resulting in less cash flow that's generated off of the murder of children. Oh, yes. The quiet part out loud indeed. It's almost as if abortion is not actually about healthcare to the pro-abortion movement and their political serviles. We know abortion is not about healthcare, but that's the quiet part that the partisans of abortion know that they can't say out loud. If abortion were about women's healthcare and reproductive healthcare, then pro-choice advocates would hold abortionists to the same medical standards and guidelines as all other surgeons, because not doing so increases the risk of harm being done to the woman seeking an abortion or of a failure to provide life-saving care to a woman if she is injured during an abortion. So in demanding that abortionists run their death camps unchecked and unbeholden to the most basic safety standards of medical care, the partisans of abortion are saying the quiet part out loud. Abortion is not about healthcare or women's rights. It's about profit. That's all that it's about. They are saying in no uncertain terms that they are willing to compromise and gamble with the health and lives of the very women they claim they exist to serve in order to ensure that abortion access is not hindered in any way. Yes, decreased access to abortion may be an unintentional byproduct of increased safety standards, but that matters little to those who have gotten rich off the abortion industry or those who have been bought off by the industry itself. Now, how do I know this is truly about profit? How do I know that the mask has slept so far now that they're not even that they're rather they're willing to pick profit over the health of the patients that they say they wake up every morning to serve. How could I make that claim? Because the abortion industry and their journalistic serviles have admitted as much. Adam Liptick, writing for the New York Times in October 2019, reported on this Louisiana law and he said, quote, the law's challengers say only one doctor in Louisiana has been able to meet that requirement. <laughs> one abortionist in the entire state of Louisiana will have been able to meet the requirement. What requirement? That they have admitting privileges at a local hospital, just like every other ambulatory surgical center. Now, the normal person's response would be, wow, holy bleep. What's wrong with our industry <laughs> and abortion doctors if so few of them can meet the basic standards and requirements of patient care? That would be the normal person's response. Like, maybe let's look inward and see what the bleep is wrong with our industry. But no, they don't care about that, right? Because... If they're willing to if they're willing to compromise the health of humans in a womb by murdering them, why would they have a problem with gambling the health of their mothers whose money they need to kill their child? If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any of the rights right. If you're willing to kill humans in a womb, why would you have a problem compromising the health of humans outside the womb in order to turn a profit? That would be the question. Adam Liptick in this piece also quotes Alexis McGill Johnson, the president of Planned Parenthood. And she says, access to abortion is hanging by a thread in this country. And this case is what could snap that thread. The president of Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider in the country that performs 30% of the annual abortions is saying this Louisiana law that requires us to meet the same basic healthcare safety standards of every other surgical center in the state. If you impose those on the abortion industry, it could snap the thread of abortion access in the entire country. That's Planned Parenthood admitting that they suck at health and they suck at caring for the health of the women that they claim they exist to serve. If such a basic requirement would break the neck of your entire industry. They're saying the quiet part out loud. The mask is slipping. It's all about profit. Okay, let's look at one more flashpoint from 2020 to kind of expose 
the direction that this battle over life is moving and the lessons we can learn as we head into 2021, which might be the most politically dangerous year to our pre-born neighbors. And the last lesson that we can pull from 2020 is the abortion industry and their political serviles, religious devotion to abortion pills, abortion pills, no matter what, their love of abortion pills. Now, you remember, as soon as the government shutdowns following COVID-19 began, the abortion industry noticed a political opportunity to get what they've always wanted, right? Never let a good crisis go to waste. What have they always wanted? Well, the ability to ship abortion pills all around the country without any in-person evaluations. So telemedicine abortions. Eh, put this abortion pill, FedEx it to your mailbox. There you go, right? It, it would revolutionize the way that the abortion industry operates and their profits. But one thing always stood in their way, the FDI's REMS requirements, the FDA's risk evaluation and mitigation strategy requirements. And those requirements were that the abortion pill be prescribed in person and usually after an evaluation and ultrasound. And I'm going to get to in a second why that requirement was in place. But why is the abortion industry has ha, had this financial incentive to expand the sale of the abortion pill across the country online? Why this push? Because they were pushing for it before the COVID-19 lockdowns. Well, here's why. 90% of abortions are performed in the first trimester. The abortion pill is taken through 10 weeks. That's before the end of the first trimester. So they have a pill that they can ship all around the country via FedEx without in-person evaluations if they get their way. And that pill is supposed to be taken during the time frame in which over 90% of abortions are performed in the first place. Ah, right? Massive profit potential. The pro-life movement has been winning on banning later-term abortions, so they're going to focus on earlier abortions to maximize their profits. Brick-and-mortar abortion clinics are more expensive to operate and require a paid staff to operate. Shipping abortion pills all around the country after a Zoom FaceTime call with an abortionist doesn't require paying the lease on abortion clinic buildings or the staff to run them. Clinics incur the cost of paying third parties to dispose of the dead babies they kill, more overhead costs. Finding enough abortionists can be difficult, even in more pro-life states that only have one or two abortionists that have to fly all around the state to kill babies. The abortion pill wouldn't require an active abortionist. The abortion pill is cheap to manufacture and you can sell at high margins and you can sell it everywhere and ship it all around the country. Wow. Hmm. I could be hired to do the marketing for the abortion industry. Do you see the potential here, the profit incentive? So in May of this year, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and other abortion supporting groups sued the HHS and the FDA with ACLU lawyers, the greatest legal enemy of the unborn, to challenge the FDA's REMS rule. And then on July 13th, a federal judge suspended the rule. The FDA's rule requiring women during COVID to visit a hospital, clinic, or medical office to obtain RU486. RU486 is the abortion pill. And here's what they argued. They argued this. It's wrong and evil to force women to go inside and visit with one doctor, all of whom are masked, for a one-on-one -on -one in-person evaluation before getting the abortion pill. That was their argument, that that was a danger to public health. So for the sake of health and safety, we must temporarily get rid of these FDA requirements. Of course, it would never be temporary. They would, they would never accept the premise that they must be forced to return to a time in which 
women had to get an in-person evaluation with an abortionist before getting the abortion pill. So why are the FDA's regulations so important in common sense, right? Going back to how the abortion industry is happy, eager, willing, excited to compromise and endanger the health of women in order to maintain abortion access, in order to maintain their profit potential, right? Same thing applies here. Because the FDA requirements that require an in-person evaluation and ultrasound before the woman gets the abortion pill, those are in place to protect and care for the health of the women getting the abortion, okay? Now, obviously, they don't care about the health of the child who's killed, but they're saying these regulations are in place for the health of the mother. And the abortion industry doesn't care about those regulations because they don't care about the health of the mother, okay? Here's what they are. The FDA's regulations required... Here's why the in-person evaluations were put in place in the first place. Because without properly dating the pregnancy, women are put at huge risk for incomplete abortions. Because remember, the abortion pill is only intended to be used through 10 weeks gestation. And many women date their pregnancies wrong, the date of the child, how old the baby is, right? In fact, we've had Dr. Brent Bowles on, a friend of mine in an OBGYN in Nashville, Tennessee. And he said that roughly 30% of his clientele will be anywhere from one to six weeks off in their um, guess or evaluation of their gestational age. So imagine if you're a pregnant woman who thinks that you're who thinks that you're eight weeks pregnant, and so you're gonna take the abortion pill, which can be taken through 10 weeks, but you're actually 12 or 13 weeks pregnant. Well, if you do that, that could lead to incomplete abortions and put the mother at risk for infections herself. So that's one of the reasons why an in-person evaluation and ultrasound is required by the FDA before getting the abortion pill. Does this sound controversial? Does this sound like pro-life Republican hacks? No, this sounds like we care about the health of women. And secondly, without performing an ultrasound before prescribing the abortion pill, you couldn't know if a woman had a ectopic pregnancy. When the baby implants in the fallopian tube and not the uterus, as the baby grows, the fallopian tube expands, left untreated, the fallopian tube bursts, mom and baby die. Okay, if you don't have an in-person evaluation and ultrasound, you couldn't diagnose ectopic pregnancies. So left unaddressed, an ectopic pregnancy can take a woman's life. And taking the abortion pill with an ectopic pregnancy can also be life-threatening to the mother. So we can ensure that these things don't happen to the mother pursuing an abortion by maintaining the FDA's risk evaluation mitigation strategy regulations. But the abortion industry doesn't want that. They want to get rid of those. They sued and temporarily were victorious in getting rid of these safety regulations. Why? To sell more abortions online. To sell more telemedicine abortions. Ah, it's almost like women are just gambling pieces to the abortion industry whose health and lives don't matter two bleeps to them if they can increase their profits. Oh, and also, according to the FDA, risk and effects of the abortion pill include abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headache, heavy bleeding, even maternal death. 24 women have died taking RU486. Average bleeding lasts 9 to 16 days, and 8% of women will bleed for more than 30 days. Oh, and a 2000 Oxford University press study found that the average failure rate of a medication abortion is 8%, meaning that about 1 in every 12 chemical abortion attempts will be unsuccessful, which means women will have to come back in and be subjected to a surgical abortion, which has its own risks as well. Oh yeah, there, there you go. There's 65 seconds you'll never hear from CNN. But don't worry, in the name of protecting women's health, we have to get rid of the FDA's regulations on the sale of the abortion pill that were created to protect women's health. The partisans of abortion don't care one ounce about the health and lives of the women they claim to fight for and serve. Pregnant women seeking abortions are just pawns to the abortion industry and the Democratic Party, and they are happy to sacrifice the health and lives of these women in order to protect and expand abortion access. The mask has slipped. These are the lessons we can learn from 2020. They're showing us who they are, and we better 
Believe well, believe them. We better dang well believe them because they're being honest enough to show their true colors. We shouldn't rationalize or explain it away. We shouldn't shrug our shoulders and move on to something else. We shouldn't say, that's extreme. There's no way that's true. No, it is true. And they're showing us exactly who they are. Who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to stand against that? The party of death, the party of slavery, the party of abortion, the party that says not all humans are persons and then is willing to target the people that they label non-persons for personal, financial, and political gain. Who will stand against that? Who will stand in the gap? Christians? I don't know. The church has been nowhere. Georgia, where if Trump doesn't get reelected, the fate of the Senate and the country is dependent on two Senate seats being held by Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, but being threatened by Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Raphael Warnock being a black quote unquote pastor who's a Marxist and hosted Fidel Castro at a youth event in America in the 1980s and says you can't serve God in your country and the military and is pro-abortion through point of birth and just tweeted out the other day that he's a pro-choice pastor. Yeah, those people running for the Georgia Senate seats. And where have been the churches in Atlanta? Where have been the pastors in Georgia? Where have been the Christian leaders in Georgia getting out the Christian vote and the pro-life vote against this abortion mania of which 2020 is an, in just a little blot, just a little preview of what's in store for our pre-born neighbors and those who seek to protect them? Where are they? Oh, they can't talk to these issues because they're not political, because of their witness. What hubris, what pride. So savable babies become a sacrifice on the witness of the church. Well, this is what is in store increasingly for our preborn children if people won't stand up in the gap. And yes, get political and engage in the public square. Engage in political discourse. Engage in political activism, not because you serve politics, but because you serve God and you want to seek the good of the city by promoting righteousness and restraining evil and potentially ending the genocide of baby image bearers who dwell in a womb that our Savior entered human history in. So what's the Democrats' plan for the GOP in 2021? End them. End them. End the Republican Party on the national level. In their maniacal devotion to protect the precious, which is abortion, at all costs, not only has the Democratic Party let the mask slip on what they believe, which is what? That an abortion profit incentive matters far, far more than the health and lives of the women they claim to serve. But they've also let the mask slip on what they plan to do when they regain the reins of power. They've been very honest about this. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. Remember, the Democratic Party does not believe in the inherent goodness of our institutions. Like what? Like separation of powers, like federalism, local control, and the electoral college. They don't believe in the goodness of these institutions. They're just tools to gain power. And if the tool doesn't work for them, they think it's broken and will throw it away, right? They love the electoral college when it gets Barack Obama elected. But then when it gets Trump elected, they say that that was a fraudulent election that was run by the Russians, Right? These institutions are not inherently good to the party of death. They're just tools to be used to gain power. And if they can't get it to work, then the tool must be broken and we should get rid of it. So when the opponent, the GOP, uses those same tools to accomplish their goals, then those tools must be taken away from everyone because we can't have our opponents using those tools to accomplish things we don't like. And what did the Trump administration accomplish with those tools? What made the left so infuriated in the last few years, and particularly in 2020? What did Trump do on the pro-life issue, which threatens the greatest sacrament of the left? Well, he did a whole lot, didn't he? Trump administration did a whole lot. 
appointed pro-life judges and justices, permitted states to defund Planned Parenthood of Title X funds, stopped tax dollars funding abortions overseas, defunded the pro-abortion United Nations Population Fund, required health insurance companies to disclose if plans cover abortion, created a new office of conscience protections at Health and Human Services to protect nurses from being forced to aid or perform abortions against their religious or moral beliefs, appointed strong pro-life appointments to keep positions, allowed states to defund Planned Parenthood of Medicaid funds, cut Planned Parenthood's tax funding by up to 60 millions, canceled contract for taxpayer-funded experimentation with body parts of aborted babies, took action against my home state of California for violating conscience protections, was the first president to speak at the March for Life, and just signed an executive order protecting infants born alive because the Senate wouldn't do so because the party of death filibustered an anti-infanticide bill. Yeah, the Trump administration has done a lot for the unborn. Have they been perfect? Have they been everything that the pro-life movement has wanted? No, but no president has ever been yet. But he's been the most pro-life president in American history. So throughout the presidential campaign of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, before Harris's campaign imploded and she was plucked out of, out of obscurity to serve as vice president, the two of them regularly let their masks slip and told us what they would do with political power, even on the issue of abortion. They were very clear, okay, in the, can in the Democratic campaigns for president. When Kamala Harris was still running and Joe Biden was still running before he was successful and she failed, they made it very clear what they would do. And here are some of the things that I'm quoting verbatim that they said on national television, in interviews, in debates before the entire country. They will codify Roe v. Wade into federal law. They will institute pre-clearance guidelines for pro-life states who wish to pass pro-life laws. What does that mean? Well, it means that if Louisiana passes a pro-life law, then Kamala Harris will sit in the White House directly after she's made president because we all know Joe Biden is mentally unfit. And she'll look at that state pro-life legislation and she'll go, I don't agree with it. It doesn't meet my pre-clearance guidelines. Destroying federalism and the democratic will. That's what that will mean. So it'll functionally end legislative attempts in the pro-life movement at the state level. OK, that's what some of the things that they said they would do. They will add four more Supreme Court justices who have the jurisprudence of a Ruth Bader Ginsburg to be a terror to unborn children at the highest court in the land. They, have, they said they will make D.C. and Puerto Rico a state, therefore achieving a permanent majority in the Senate and essentially ending the Republican Party on the national level because the amount of decades it would take to regain a majority in the Senate after the Democratic Party just added four new seats and filled them with Democrats – would be atrocious. They will abolish the filibuster, one of the last checks on power, so those pesky Republicans can't block them from passing the radical abortion legislation. They will abolish the Hyde Amendment, which keeps tax dollars from funding abortions through Medicaid reimbursements and is responsible for saving over 2 million lives since it was instituted. Then they will increase the tax funding of Planned Parenthood by the millions. And that administration will be to the unborn what Hitler was to the Jews. Babies will be targeted and rounded up for slaughter like no other time in American history. Hmm. That's what they would be to the unborn and to pro-lifers who seek to protect them. Remember, right before Trump got reelected, when we thought we were going to get Hillary, the Obama administration and Kamala Harris in California was trying to force pro-life pregnancy centers. I'm sorry. It would have been Xavier Becerra at the time to force California pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise abortions on the walls of their pregnancy clinics, <laughs> referring women for abortions and telling them where they can get it. So yes, they're going to target and attack those who seek to protect the unborn as well. This would essentially end the legislative efforts of the pro-life movement at both the state and federal level. 
because that GOP party could not even be successful at a federal level with four new Democratic seats in the Senate, a filibuster that is ended, right, so that they can ramrod and accomplish everything that they want, and codifying Roe v. Wade into federal law. And it may very well take decades of relentless engagement in the culture wars to regain the political capital necessary for the GOP to advocate legislatively for the unborn. We cannot allow this to happen. And barring some miracle where President Trump gets reelected, then this two Senate seats in Georgia that are having their special runoff elections in January will hold the hopes of many in the conservative movement, in the pro-life movement, in tension as we wait to see whether the Senate will stay in the GOP's control or in the Democratic Party's control. And if we lose those two seats, the Senate is tied. And guess who becomes the tie-breaking vote? Kamala Harris, the most pro-abortion politician in American history, becomes the tie-breaking vote as vice president. Therefore, accomplishing everything that they want to serve their greatest sacrament and their greatest god, Molech, in attacking unborn children in 2021. That's what we have waiting for us. So we need to talk about the importance of Christians getting involved in politics. This is why I love the organization My Faith Votes, because they recognize that if Christians voted and we voted biblically, we would own every election at the state and federal level. Tens of millions of Christians in America are not registered to vote. And those that are registered to vote, about half of them don't vote. Where is the church? Where is the bride of Christ? If the church doesn't wake up and begin advocating and contending in the political arena, not only will our liberty to preach the full gospel be taken away, but any opportunity of abolishing abortion and protecting the unborn in our laws will fade away for who knows how long. But the church couldn't talk about those things, right? They couldn't help Republicans run and win their races because why? Because of their witness. This is what my friends tell me. Said I couldn't vote for Trump because of my witness. Because I didn't want my leftist friends who hate God to learn that I voted for Trump and then never hear me share the gospel with them. Well, I don't know what gospel that is. A gospel that won't even bubble in a little box on a ballot that could end the genocide of baby image bearers who dwell in the location that your savior, that your creator became human as we just celebrated Advent, the incarnation. Well, if a witness promises to tell the truth and God's people can't even speak the truth about life in the womb where our savior became human and contend to protect that life, then I don't know what God you're a witness for. What God is that? What God are you worshiping? Not the prenatal God who entered human history in a womb that he once knit together. Couldn't be that one. Because you won't even do this most simplest flipping thing, stand in line and fill out a ballot that could stop the murder of those same babies in the same womb that you celebrate your savior entering human history in. I don't know what God that is that sacrifices savable babies on the altar of your witness. By the way, that knife cuts both, excuse me, cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because don't you know many pagans? Leftists who hate God and hate Christians, but they don't like Christians because they don't think they're consistent. You know what some of these people say about Christians and pro-lifers? They say, if those Christians really believed what they say they believed, namely that their savior and God was a fetus, was an embryo, then they would be getting involved in every aspect of political life to stop what in their view would be the genocide of image bearers in the same location as their God. 
So I don't have any respect for the credibility of that Christianity if they won't even work politically to protect babies that they believe are babies and created in the image of their prenatal God. So as long as we continue to elevate and worship our witness above the person that we're witnessing of our prenatal God, then it might not be the same God that I'm worshiping. My witness. What hubris. What pride. To care so much about what others think about you. Because let's be honest, that's what people are really saying when they don't want their witness to be harmed. They don't want their leftist friends to not like them if they learn that they voted for the most pro-life president in American history. Not because he's perfect, but because he's willing to protect children in wombs. Well, that's my end of year message for 2020. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Have fun. Not a light message, not a fun message, but a needed one. If we don't engage and wake up, there may not be a Republican Party able to accomplish anything in 2021. And America and her unborn children will be at the tender mercies of a party that boos God at their conventions, sues nuns for not paying for abortion drugs, handicaps cops so criminals can loot and burn minority-owned small businesses, lets men compete in women's sports and shower in their bathrooms, that nurses should be forced to perform or assist with abortions upon threat of career terminations, believes you should fund abortions, be forced to use your professional creative gifts to serve customers you prefer not to and wants to rem- remove your parental authority in your if your minor child wants to chemically castrate herself and surgically remove her genitalia. That's everything that the Democratic Party cares about right now, right? Those are all the issues they make quite clear they're willing to defend or advocate on behalf of. If we don't get involved in politics and abandon our obsession with our witness and our reputation and ensure that we don't keep the Senate this January. There might not be a Republican Party to function in any meaningful way at the national and federal level in 2021. And that other party, who loves all of the things I just said, will be unencumbered by any other political force preventing them from instituting their quote-unquote utopia. That sound good to you? Are we willing to abandon our obsession with our witness now and embrace a comprehensive Christianity and abandon this compartmentalized Christianity, which says we can't put our faith in politics because we might be labeled hacks who are idolatrizing, creating an idol out of politics, as Beth Moore would critique us for doing. Well, it turns out when you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. In fact, you'll get them gravely wrong, won't you? This January will mark 48 years since our country accepted the premise, once again, that not all humans are persons, and that the unborn might be human, but it's kind of partially human, it's not a full human, and therefore we can kill them through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all, and you should fund it. It's been 48 years since we've accepted that premise in American law, and since that party, the party of death, has accepted that premise and advocated and defended that premise for its entire existence, It's began to decay on every other moral issue, hasn't it? And it's begun to advocate politically for deeply immoral issues that I just went through. But what issue did they cave on first? Which issue did they get wrong first? Abortion, human rights in the womb. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. In fact, you'll get them gravely wrong. This is what we're waiting for. Will you engage? Will you defend? I hope you will. And I'll see you on the battlefield. Have a happy new year. Go out there, embrace the eternal hope that springs from the human soul that our Savior put in us because he entered a womb that he wants in it together to redeem mankind from his sins as the fully God-man, to give us the hope 
the courage and the passion to defend life, to defend the gospel, and to put our faith everywhere. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps us reach more people. It really does. And this next year will be more important to reach people with pro-life ideas than ever before. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com. For my training videos, my speaking schedule, which is taking off in 2021, I'd love to see you live and local and subscribe to my newsletter. Till next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. We'll